0: Quick note before we open the show, and I begin running my mouth, which is what I do here on the Savage Lovecast. Uh, I've been on vacation for the last couple of weeks, so that's why the top of this show and last week's show not totally topical, hard to be topical weeks in advance. But uh, this is a topic that comes up frequently in Savage Love and on the Savage Lovecast. Straight guys who will let gay guys blow them. Kenneth in the two one two, who's a blogger. Uh, Kenneth Walsh in New York, he's a, an editor uh, and a writer. Covers pop music, politics, culture, celebrity, music, tennis. Tennis uh, and New York City LGBT Issues. It's a terrific blog, Kenneth in the 212. I read it regularly. And uh, right before I left on vacation, he tossed up the Craigslist ad of the day, straight looking for gay roommate, 28 Midtown East. And listen to this guy's ad. Straight guy here, 28, professional, athletic, masculine. Why I want a gay roommate? Because it works out to be a good arrangement if we're both totally cool about it. Things I like. There's a list. Things I like about having a gay roommate. You don't mind cleaning the place and picking up after us both, including our laundry. Two, usually pretty good cooks and don't mind cooking for straight guys. Three, pretty good decorators and make the place look good. Things I can give you. This is also a list. So it's not just one way. You're just not going to be cooking and cleaning for this guy. He's going to do for you too, gay roommate. Here are the things he can give you. Number one, being around a hot straight guy that walks around a lot in his boxer briefs. That he will give you. Two, long as you can keep it discreet and not get all possessive, my dick to suck a few times a week. Get really horny when I've been out drinking on weekends, he adds. Three, let you massage me after workouts. So gay guys, what you're going to do for him is cook and clean and decorate. And what he's going to do for you Is lay there while you suck him off or while you give him a massage. And sometimes let you look at him when he walks around in his boxer briefs. There's more. There are other lists. Uh, the way it will go is split rent 60-40 with him actually paying more of the rent because he wants the bigger bedroom uh, and blah de da blah dee, blah uh, Kenneth in the 212 put this up uh, on his blog and people freaked out. I put it up on my blog and people freaked out. And there's a lot of screaming and yelling about this guy's attitude, how entitled he was. People called him a jerk and an asshole. And I, I want to call him all those things too. And if you go to Kenneth in the 212, you will see a picture of this guy. Naked, And it is a body that, you know, you might want to massage every once in a while or look at every once in a while. And I really want to be mad at this guy too and I would be mad at this guy too if it weren't for all the letters I get from kink guys who want just this sort of arrangement, who would love to be this guy's roommate, who would love to cook and clean and sexually service – this is very Dom Subby, this list – uh, some hot, entitled, bro-y, masculine, asshole, straight dude. Uh, so it's a little hard for me to to hate this guy for putting this out there because there is a lid out there for his jar. There just is, and there's something kind of like revolution about this. This is the revolution. Straight guys who are so comfortable, so post homophobia that they can lay back, close their eyes and think of England while they get a blow job. That used to be really common. They used to be much more common before the modern gay rights movement came along. If you're the dude getting the blow job, you may or may not be gay. Uh, and after Stonewall blowing or getting blown, you had to be gay. And a lot of straight guys who used to lay back, think of England, get a blow job opted out of that great sexual marketplace. They were no longer willing to be milked by gay dudes and they're back. And so I don't think this guy is necessarily gay or a closet case. People are calling him a closet case. I just think he's heteroflexible and he wants somebody to pick up after him and do his laundry and cook for him and decorate and blow him until the right lucky young lady comes along. He will settle for a fag roommate. Good luck to him. Hope he found his dream roommate. I hope all of you out there listening have your dream roommates at home, too. And now your calls.
2: Hi, my question to you is regarding online dating. I met this girl online about a year and a half ago. And I was in school at the time, and she was living in another city, in another province or state. I flew down a couple times to the city to where she was supposedly living, and she stood me up every time. I nearly quit school once to take this really awesome job with a previous education of mine, but she wouldn't meet me at the airport. And we would break apart and we'd see other people and we'd kind of get back together, I guess, online. And, you know, she had a Facebook account that was, you know, it seemed legit full of pictures of herself and friends and, and everything else. But it was, uh, I ended up just finding out recently that, um, it was all fake. It wasn't even her real name. She didn't even live in that city. In fact, she lived a couple of hours from here. And it's just, I just don't understand why people do that. A year and a half, to a look up a lot. I took a lot of energy. I took up a lot of effort. And I can't help it, but I feel kind of violated. And I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure how to cope with this. Other than like move on, like I've cut all contact with her, of course, But after finding help, but it's just, it's just weird.
0: You don't understand why people do this, why she would do this, why she would invest so much time and energy in this lie and, and, and misleading you and abusing you and violating your trust. And I understand why she would do that. Uh, I understand why people do that because some people are shitbags, because some people are liars, because some people are assholes, because some people are fucking crazy. What I don't understand is you, is how people keep falling for this shit. There's a whole television show. There's Catfish on MTV and it's second season. There's the movie Catfish. There's New Yorker – Cartoons dating back more than a decade now with a dog sitting at a computer saying on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. People should know this by now. This should be hardwired into the collective consciousness of all of us that if that someone you meet online may or may not exist. Someone that you meet online may be lying to you, misrepresenting themselves, using someone else's pictures, using old pictures of themselves. And really, there's a one-strike-you're-out policy on I flew to your city to meet you and you blew me off. That is giving up the ghost. That is game over. That is all the proof you need that this person that you've made the acquaintance of online is a fabrication. There's somebody behind it, something, someone out there exists. But the person that you thought you were interacting with, if they don't show up at the airport because they got in a car accident or their mom had cancer or suddenly they had to go in for chemo treatments – or there was a meteor strike, or what the fuck ever, they don't exist and you're being played and played with. That's why I, I, I get in trouble sometimes in my column. I realize more and more people meet online. Almost half of all new relationships, half of all marriages begin with an online meeting now and that's great. A lot of people meet online, dating online, Okay, Cupid, all the dirty uh, hookup sites, all the mainstream one, Christian Mingle, but … Knowing that most people meet online doesn't mean that you are in a relationship with someone if you haven't met them face-to-face. People who meet online who wind up in relationships, wind up married, wind up together, they eventually meet – quickly meet face-to-face. So you feel violated because you invested so much time and effort and energy in a relationship that – Your bullshit detector should have told you early on was bullshit. That first time she blew you off when you flew to her city, you should have said, game over. You can come see me sometime and if you don't come see me in the next two weeks, I'm not talking to you anymore. And yet I get letters all the time at my column. I get calls from people who say, I'm in love. My boyfriend and I have been together for three years. Later in the letter, they will casually mention – this detail. We've never actually met face to face. We've never actually been intimate, had sex, even Skyped. And yet they want me to treat this as if it's a relationship and not a charade. So yeah, what she was doing was inexcusable and shitty. But what you were doing, you need to take some responsibility for that, what you were doing. What you were doing was being kind of clueless and stupid. And that adds to the violation, I know, because she traded on your good nature and your willingness to give her the benefit of the doubt and your belief in the person, the fiction that she created and that doubles or triples or quadruples the the feeling of violation. So what you need to do is take that anger, take that feeling of violation and transmorgify it not into an inability to trust anyone again ever that you meet online or anywhere else but just like a lesson learned. Store this away. Use it to – sharpen your bullshit detectors to more finely tune them so you don't fall for this crap again because there are a lot of people out there online doing this. And why do they do it? Because some people are assholes. That's all you got to tell yourself. Some people are assholes. Why would she do that? Because she's a fucking asshole. Maybe she was dropped on her head when she was a kid. Maybe she is starved for affection in some crazy way and this is the only way that she can find affection in the world is to present some false person to the world because she is personally – So repulsive that no one could fall in love with her, so she believes, so she's told herself. Who knows? We can theorize forever about her motives. All you got to tell yourself is she's a dumb fucking scumbag asshole. Go forth. Be happy. Meet other people online elsewhere. Just don't be so fucking naive. Insist on early face-to-face meetings with online relationships. Skype if it's. Far apart. I mean it's a beautiful thing about the internet. It brings people together who are on other sides of the planet. It, it's, it's a magic sorting hat that, where people can find that one person on earth whose kinks align with their very rare kink or politics or whatever else it might be. You can really reach out into the billions of people on the planet uh, and, and find that one person that maybe you're as close to a perfect match as two people get. That's a magic superpower of the internet. That comes with the dark power, black magic power of the internet, which allows people to lie to people pretty effectively and to toy with their emotions sadistically. So since we all know that, all of us are good and smart and not toying with people's emotions and not being sadistic or assholes on the internet, you got to trust but verify. Trust that this person exists and then verify their fucking existence. Real names, Skype sessions, a meeting early on within the first three or four months.
2: Hi, Dan. Um, my name is Dan. Uh, I live in Pennsylvania.
3: I, my question is about finding a relationship. Uh, I'm six years old and I have always been a monogamous type of monogamous-minded monogamous person. I am gay and I have had such a hard time finding a relationship because of the either the shallowness of gay men or the pr- promiscuity of gay men. Um, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm another guy, but you know, uh, things about my race or my weight will come up. And then, uh, on the other hand, all the time, the only guys who seem to be interested in me are New York guys who want to have sex with me, but are not interested in dating. And I feel like I've spent the better part of my youth trying to figure out how, how do I make this happen for myself? How do I meet the person who is for me? Or, or, or I don't know.
0: The promiscuity of gay men. I know, I know. It's a thing. It's a real thing. It's a thing that exists. But a guy who wants to have sex with you, that's a good place to start. Uh, you know, There are guys out there who are only going to want to have sex with you, but there's a lot of guys in relationships, long-term, stable, loving relationships, where the beginning felt like this guy just wants to have sex with me. It was just a sex thing. It was just a hookup. It was a one-night stand. Um, I know a guy who's in a successful long-term relationship that began with a one-night stand. It's the guy – whose voice you're listening to now. So it's a it's a bad dating and mating and relationship strategy to automatically reflexively disqualify anyone who expresses what appears to be initially an exclusively sexual interest in you because you can leverage that to something more if that guy is decent. Now some people wanna just have sex with people and they treat those people like fleshlights or dirty tube socks they picked up off the floor. And not like human beings. Don't have sex with those guys. And it's pretty easy to tell those guys from otherwise decent guys who are just kind of into you and would like to get with you and then maybe they would like to get with you again if that first getting was good and if the second getting is as good as the first getting, maybe there will be a third getting and then pretty soon you're hanging out and then pretty soon it's a relationship. That's how a lot of relationships, gay and straight, get off the ground because people were promiscuous, because they just jumped into bed with each other and then – something else happened more happened something there was something else there in addition to just mutual sexual attraction yeah there's a lot of shitty fucking guys out there gay guys uh who say shitty things about race you know i have this you know i'm only into white dudes just my preference no asians we see these things on internet personal ads and they're really horrible and the guys who do that mostly are young gay guys. You're 26, guys your own age and younger. You're going to be exposed to more of that during your youth, during the years since you've come out than you will be in the future. Here's my theory about why that is. Um, you know, Gay people are, are randomly distributed throughout the population and we all sort of clump up in these gay meccas, particularly when we're young because we need to create a kind of critical mass, a large enough number that there's a viable dating scene. See some goddamn choices, Right. So, gay guys from all over the place, from small towns, from rural areas, from very non diverse areas, from very white areas, pile into a Seattle, pile into a Chicago or a New York, and their attitudes about race and in every respect, including uh, the interplay between race and attraction, have been shaped and sort of thoughtlessly so by an all white culture. They have a lot of white privilege, as they one might say at Smith or Bernard. And so they say thoughtless, shitty, racist things on their personal ads and they say it a lot when they're young in their 20s and then they get pushed back and they get pushed back and then if they're living in a large, diverse place, hopefully they start meeting other people of other races and they realize that this is a shitty thing that they've been doing and they stop. By the time those guys are in their 30s, they've knocked it off. But by the time they're in their 30s, damage done. They said these shitty things. You and other gay men uh, who are not white have listened to them and been scarred by them. And by the time those guys who have been doing it in their 30s and they stop, there's a fresh crop who are doing it still. So it feels like this constant. It feels like this never gets better. It feels like it never stops and actually it does stop. Each wave of stupid white gay guys from very white suburbs and rural areas and exurbs, they get over it in time. But they've been replaced by new stupid young gay white guys who are going to have to learn the same lessons and stop. And I'm confident it does stop. Uh, And there's some stats that back me up. Gay people, gay men, gay relationships are likelier to be interracial than any other relationships. Gay men are likelier to date outside their race than anybody else, straight, lesbian, bi, anybody. The stats back that up. If gay men were incurable, asshole,ly racist all their life, I don't think that that would be true. We wouldn't see those interracial relationships. We always take when it comes to straight people, we talk about interracial relationships. We take the growth in interracial relationships as a marker of progress on race in this country. Gay men. Most interracial – most like gay men, most likely to have interracial relationships. There's progress on the race issue for gay men and it's evident in that stat. But you're 26. You've been probably flirting with guys who are in their early 20s, probably started when you were in your teens and 18, 19 years old at the time when stupid white guys are most likely to say shitty racist things on their personal ads and to the faces of African-American, Asian, Hispanic. Middle Eastern guys that they meet out in bars and clubs and on behalf of all the stupid white gay guys in the world, myself included, I apologize to you. The upside of course is you're 26 now. You're on the downward slope in your 20s and this is going to get better. You're going to encounter less of this as you grow up and the white guys out there around you grow up too. Hopefully, you're also open to dating non-white guys like yourself uh, from whom you will encounter very little of this. If you're not open to dating non-white guys like yourself, you are part of the problem, as they say. Uh, Around weight, yeah, there's some guys who aren't into guys who are big. There's some guys who are into guys who are big. There's a whole movement, uh, bears and everybody else. There's it's certainly now a much better time to be a gay man of a sort of non-Adonis body type than at any other time in the past. Uh, Sometimes when I listen to gay guys who are you know not Adonis types talking about the fact that it's very hard for them to date. When they unpack it, what they mean is it's very hard for them to date Abercrombie and Fitch models. It's very hard for them to date porn stars because they are not porn stars themselves or Abercrombie and Fitch models themselves. Um, if you uh, as a person uh, you know of a different size, as an unconventionally attractive person, uh, are only willing to date guys who look like Brian Gosling because that's the only kind of guy you're attracted to, well then, then you're part of the problem. You need to look around and be more open to guys of all the different shapes and sizes and races, just as you would hope the guys that you're attracted to would be as well. So you can be you can be the change you want to see in the world by broadening the base, broadening the numbers of different guys, types of guys that you're attracted to. If indeed, you know I'm assuming here, if indeed your tastes are limited. But get out there. You're 26, it's going to get better. It's going to improve. And it improves pretty rapidly, I think. My last bit of advice for you, look around. You're frustrated. You're single. You would rather date, get to know somebody before you're intimate. There are lots of guys like you out there. They're not the guys who are tearing it up on Grinder. They're not the guys that the party swirls around in the gay bars. Look around the periphery. Look around the edges of the gay bar. Look around community organizations. Look around volunteer groups. Look around political organizations, arts groups. You will find other gay guys who are not the fast lane, tear it up, promiscuous, crazy, judging everybody only on their looks and whether they would look good on their dick guys that can make gay life seem so commodified and impersonal and fleshlighty. But if you're standing in the gay bar only looking – at the hottest guys on the dance floor dancing with their shirts off and wondering why they're not paying attention to you and not looking to your left or your right at the other guys who are standing around the edges of the gay bar, looking at the hottest guys in the bar who aren't paying attention to them, you are, again, not part of the problem, but you're not seeing the solution to your problem, which is to not look at the fast lane hottest guys on the planet, but to look to your left and to your right at the other guys, some of whom are pretty fucking hot and available and ready and willing to date and date you if you would only take your eyes for a moment off the porn stars on the dance floor.
4: Hi, Dan. I'm Matt. And I'm Anthony. Hey, we are two listeners, and uh, we have a question. We were talking about sex during a girl's period. Um, We both have lovely ladies. Uh, Yeah, we do. I and my lady personally do not uh, usually – make love during this time. Um, we were talking about where these come from or where this idea comes from, whether it's society somehow convincing me not to have sex uh, during the period. Um, yeah. I, I think that somewhere deep in culture at one point, so, some kind of health risk was associated with having sex during the period. It's hard for me to, to think that a culture just came up with don't have sex during the period out of nowhere. So where you come from, too? I mean, I I have had sex with her on her period. Sure. And, you know, from what I can tell, like, it hasn't been one or two times. It's been multiple times here and there. Sure. We've been together for almost two years now, and I we have yet to see any kind of ill health effects at oh, all. Huh. Um, and I personally think that it is more of just a cultural bias is something that is considered to be unclean, almost like some kind of, like, a patriarchal establishment that, you know, has existed since people started worshipping Jeho- Jeho- tradition idols, and... Okay, okay. ...that there is no actual health risk involved with it. And my... What I'm saying, Dan, is I, I know that there's a cultural issue involved with sex during the period, but I also think a lot of cultural issues like that stem back to these ancient times or maybe... Uh, A compromised vagina during hunter-gatherer days was something to avoid conjugal visits during these times of the month. I I don't know. I don't know. Dan, we want your knowledge. We want it now. Yeah.
0: Joining me by phone to talk about vaginas, compromised and otherwise, Alice Dreger, professor of medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and a writer for the health section of The Atlantic. So Alice, I thought I needed an assist on this one, a reach around from you because this is outside. Uh, Thanks, out of a my,
5: bloody reach around. <laughs> Dan, a bloody reach around. A
0: bloody reach around. Just once a month, I ask for a bloody reach around from <laughs> from a friend. Because uh, this is outside of my pay grade. Uh, no sex during periods. Uh, the one guy is convinced that uh, there had to be some health risks associated with menses. Otherwise, some desert tribal culture wouldn't just establish some crazy arbitrary rules. Uh, like, don't eat pig, or you can't mix fibers, or uh, there's so many cultures that have established completely bullshit, crazy arbitrary rules to d- establish in group and out group uh, bona fides. You know who's in the tribe or out of the tribe based by whether they adhere to your tribe's crazy batshit rules. Was this a crazy batshit rule, or was there some sense to this no sex during menses stuff?
5: So I, I did a bunch of reading in the anthropological literature, and the historical literature, and then the medical literature, and it's actually been fun reading about it. Um, One of the things we can say that's kind of fascinating is about half of ancient cultures and older cultures, so cultures that are not yet industrialized, what we know of them, at least about half of them have this taboo that says that you can't have intercourse during menses. So that's kind of fascinating, and it would lead you to think, well, there must have been a reason. On the other hand, we always love to read back into stupid taboos Modern day reasons. And, you know, there's no way for the people back then to have had a germ theory of disease. There's no way for them to have had a sophisticated understanding of menstruation. Mind you, it was only in the 19th century, only in the 1800s, where we really began to understand what the hell menstruation even was that we figured out the menstrual cycle and figured out it was related to ovulation very clearly and that sort of thing. Wait, wait, wait. wait.
0: What did they think it was before? Like a a special monthly paper cut that women got? What were they? (laughs) They they knew that it was a
5: sign that you were fertile and not pregnant, but they didn't know that what was going on was the fluffing of the womb and the cleaning out of the system, essentially, in case next time around you did get pregnant. Mm -hmm. They didn't know that stuff. So there wasn't a way for them to know these kinds of things. But that said, about at least about half of older cultures seem to have had some kind of taboo. And when I've read up on why this is, people have lots of theories, but we don't actually know. It seems to come down to blood is known to be scary, right? Blood is associated with injury and death. And so going near somebody who's bleeding down there is kind of scary for some people. And so it seems to be associated with the whole concept that blood is scary. And in many circumstances, blood is scary, right? Blood is a sign that somebody's been injured or something has been killed. So I think that it had to do with sort of a more vague concept of blood being scary. By the way, I found, and I know you're going to love this, that in the Jewish tradition, which, of course, some of the Christian systems adopted, the place where the no intercourse during menstruation taboo shows up is, guess which which book? Leviticus. Leviticus. It is. It's Leviticus.
0: (laughs) Everybody's favorite book in the Bible.
5: Exactly. So it's Leviticus, and it says, if a woman have issue, and her issue in her flesh be blood— she shall put, she shall be put apart seven days, and whoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. So she is, you know, sent away into a menstrual hut. Some people have theorized women actually liked being sent away because they got to go hang out together and not deal with the normal housework. But we don't find any evidence that it was women um, behind this. We don't know if it was women or men behind well, it. I, is
0: what? I'd like to jump in here and make the gay point that the same motherfuckers who are always talking about Leviticus and we have to obey Leviticus, we have to obey the anti-gay shit in Leviticus because it's right there in the. Bible, they're not opening up menstrual huts next to pizza huts and strip malls in the Bible Belt to send their wives to. The only shit we ever hear that they want to like, you know, keep in force from Leviticus is the anti-gay shit. But the like menstruation yep. shit, oh, we don't even talk about it. No,
5: of course they don't talk about it. They're probably having sex during menstruation. They're too busy to talk about it.
0: The the fifty percent of cultures where there was no taboo was there an encourage. It wasn't the opposite. It wasn't like oh my god, she. It's that time of month. Dive in. Was it? Or was it just no. like, yeah, any time is good, even the bloody time? But was was there any culture that you found where that was the go time? Ooh, she's bleeding. Do it, do it, do no, it. No,
5: actually, that's a, that's a modern concept. and I'll tell you about a medical paper in a minute that recommends sex to menstruation for interesting reasons. No, that was not the case. But the other interesting thing that I was reading up about is that, you know, in older times, of course, women were not menstruating as much. And the reason was that they were more, less well-nourished. And so you menstruate less when you're less well-nourished than we are today. But also, they spent a lot more of their time pregnant or or nursing babies. And in the system where they used to nurse babies where they were also malnourished, you were much less likely to have a period. So the estimate is that women who are among foraging groups today, so that is groups, cultures that are sort of older cultures, that they would have about 160 ovulations in the course of their life, so for about 160 period cycles, whereas a typical American woman today would have 450. So women today are having far more instances of menstruation. So it have had a taboo back then, Frankly, the taboo didn't kick in nearly as often as the taboo would kick in today. And that's kind of interesting because it suggests that maybe part of what was going on was that menses really was special, that people saw it and thought like, oh, that's not right, because women were not menstruating that much. Huh. They were either pregnant or they were lactating or they were malnourished enough that they were doing neither. So, I mean, just just a couple of really interesting stats. The first age of menses for foragers is 16 years old. Americans, it's 12.5 for girls. So there's a four-year difference. Um The first birth for foragers is at 19.5 years. For Americans, it's at 24 years. Or for educated women, it's 26.5 years. And then the length of lactation per birth among foragers is almost three years, whereas for Americans, it's three months. So what you've got is a situation where in the olden days, when these prohibitions existed, frankly, menstruation was less common.
2: Wow!
0: Really so the yeah. the Menstrual Hut next to the Pizza Hut down by the strip mall and by the Sea of Galilee five thousand years ago wasn't very crowded.
5: Exactly. You know, I love to picture it because we built a writing shack for me in the backyard that my husband sometimes (laughs) calls my Menzies hut because he sends me out there when I'm PMSing. But I used to love to picture like, you know, that there was a Menzies hut and all the women got together and they were like cracking up like, ah, we don't have to do the housework. But in fact, I think there would not have been that many women in that hut at any given time because there just were not that, we were just not menstruating nearly as much as we do today.
0: What was the last paper you said that there was an interesting story from that you wanted to share?
5: So I went into the medical literature, and basically, we don't know a lot about safety of intercourse during menses, although there is some data from Africa that indicates higher rates of transmission of HIV if you have sex during intercourse. Now, that said, if you're having sex with somebody with HIV, it's not a good idea to do it unprotected anyway. But if you do do it unprotected, menses seems to add a slight layer of infection rate. So um, that would be bad. But other than that, the data is actually pretty thin in terms of whether or not it causes problems. Um, theoretically, we would think it would because it's blood and blood can carry disease. And also, when a woman is menstruating, her cervix is um, softer, it lets more stuff through. So theoretically, she could be infected more easily. But the data on this is actually, the, the medical literature concludes, we don't really know. And what we, there, I did find this paper by an obstetrician um, actually out of Israel. He may have been trying to challenge the Lysidicus thing. In the archives of Glencoe and obstetrics from 2010, and he actually pushes the idea that if you're going to counsel your patients about intercourse during menses, you shouldn't just talk about what might be bad. You should talk about what's great, and he names a few things. One of the things he names is you can't get pregnant, so that's really great. Um, one of the things he names is you get extra lube. One oh, of the oh
0: wait, sh- wait. I just had lunch. <laughs>
5: He also names that it can help with um, menstrual pain, which a lot of women anecdotally uh, agree with that. if you talk to women, they'll say, I love having sex during my period because it actually stops the cramping. Um, And so it can have that benefit. And then the other thing he says is if you have a woman who five days a month is menstruating and you cut out all intercourse during that time, you lose a lot of opportunities for sex. And he says you should make a point to them that they're going to lose all those days in terms of days they could be having sex. So he actually votes in favor of counseling people that if you're going to mention there might be a slight increase of disease risk, you should also mention there's a heck of a lot of benefits to sex during intercourse. So I love this paper.
0: Now, circling back um, to these two guys, to the callers, here you have two sounds sort of sexually active, you know, they're not married, they're they're, they're buddies, they have girlfriends, uh, sort of the same cultural milieu and, and pretty secular sounding. Uh, and yet these two couples, one has fallen on the no sex during Uh, the period side of the fence and the other is, yeah, let's do it, whatever, all the time. How do you think that happens? Is it just...
2: So this
5: is really interesting. In this paper from the um, doctor in the Archives of uh, Gynecology and Obstetrics, he talks about a survey that was done to try to figure out... Well, it was a survey done of lots of stuff, but one of the things they were trying to figure out is what kind of women have sex during their period. And what's really interesting is how it maps out in terms of women who are interested in it versus women who are not. And I'll read to you what they found women who were engaged in sexual intercourse during menses were significantly more comfortable with menstruation and more aroused by romantic and unconventional sexual activities. They were less sensitive to disgust. They had higher partner support, higher sexual interest, greater reported frequency of intercourse, larger numbers of lifetime partners, or used marijuana before intercourse. <laughs> <The> pra- <laughs> I knew you'd like that. The practice of intercourse during menses was also reported more common among better educated, with relatively higher levels of income, young white women and their sex partners. So in other words, it looks like those people who are having sex during menses generally are more sex positive, more comfortable with their bodies, and better supported by their partners. And hi. Yeah, and
0: hi. <laughs> Alice Drager, and, and yet your husband sends you out to your Menzies writing hut and instead of...
2: But he visits. Oh, good.
0: <laughs> I hope he brings the bong when he comes out. I was going to say, he visits with a towel. <laughs> hi, Alice Drager, professor of medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine, and a writer for the health section of The Atlantic, where she writes terrific stuff. You should look her up. Alice, thanks so much for jumping on the phone with us today. That was fascinating stuff.
6: Thanks, Dan. Bye. Bye. Hey, Dan, I am a 21-year-old male in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I have a girlfriend, and I got a, a bit of a problem lately. Um, she's bi, and I have no problem with her being bi. In fact, I think it's perfectly okay. But um, we've had some experiences where, you know, we do, like, three-ways, stuff like that. But she's been liking this one girl, and she wants to deal with her romantically and, like, not day like not be poly or anything but more monogamish is. And I was okay with that, but I made a deal with her. I was like, well if you're gonna have someone else in your life that is not just sex, then I should be okay too. And she didn't like the idea at all. In fact she hated it. Um and I she what she said to me was, sure, as long as I go date a guy, but I am straight. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that it's fair that just because she likes both sexes, which, again, I'm perfectly okay with, that she can get with the opposite sex. Well, me, I don't like both sexes, unfortunately, so I cannot do what she does and get with both of them. So she keeps saying how she wants to be with a guy and a girl, and I keep telling her that's fine, but then I should be able to be connected, not just, physically, but emotionally, to another girl, too, if I feel like it. I mean, I don't really have a girl in mind, and I actually probably even won't, but it's just the, you know, the equality of it. Like, I feel like it's not, it's just not equal if I do not have that same chance that she does, just because she's kind of using my straight against me, which is weird in this uh, day and age. And we both listen to your podcast, so I think, you know, whatever you say would uh, get either one of our minds, you know, might change one of us around. So am I in the wrong? I mean, is it wrong for me to want to be with someone that I like? Or should I just deal with it just because I don't like both sexes and she does?
0: So the deal is she gets to sleep with people she wants to sleep with and you get to sleep with people you don't. That she gets to be with people that she is attracted to, you and women. And to be fair, you get to be with people that – You're attracted to her and people that you are not attracted to, dudes. Uh, Bullshit. It's amazing. This comes up a lot. I've heard this before. You are not the only straight guy out there with a bisexual girlfriend who wants permission to sleep with and date and even have relationships with women. Uh, And then when the guy responds with, OK, if we're going to have an open relationship, I'd like to sleep with other women too, who then is told that no, 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 it's not going to work that way. Uh, I get to sleep. I'm with you. You're the man I'm with. I'm the woman you're with. You get to sleep with other men. It's just bullshit. It's about people. Remember, we hear usually frequently from bisexual supremacists that uh, they're attracted to people, not genitals. They don't see gender. They just love people. And it's amazing how quickly uh, for some bisexuals, uh, people become gendered when they're partner wants the same permission to have sex outside the relationship that they've demanded for themselves. Stand your ground. I have a very good friend who uh, had to stand his ground with his bisexual girlfriend when she started sleeping with other women and having relationships with other women and he said, "Okay, we're in an open relationship. And she did exactly what your girlfriend is doing. Yes, we are in an open relationship. You can sleep with men. Uh, And he had to say, "Mm, no, I am going to sleep with other people that I find attractive too because that's the license you've given her. She is sleeping with other people that she finds attractive. Women, you should have the same right to sleep with other people that you find attractive as well.
7: I'm a thirty five year old lesbian living in a conservative part of the East Coast. I've been out to my family for about fifteen years. While that's how it's walking moments, they've mostly been welcoming to my girlfriends. Just a few years ago, my two younger sisters, both straight, married within six months of one another. Mom would take days off from work to go to so many of their wedding appointments, driving a few hours one way just to do stuff like meet with a caterer or a florist. She was beside herself and heavily involved in both of their weddings. And despite the proximity to one another time-wise, my parents gave them each a relatively generous budget, working hard to make the experiences equally magical for them both. They both had traditional weddings with catered receptions and honeymoon trips. Flash forward to me. I'm engaged, and I have been since November. My parents didn't even ask me about our wedding plans until months after the engagement, and then only because my sister told my mother my feelings were hurt that she hadn't. Their solution was to throw a little money at us. Less than a quarter of the wedding budget that my sisters had, but it's less the money and more the fact that Mom couldn't wait to throw a baby shower for my sister, yet basically told me I could arrange my own bridal shower and just let her know what it costs, and they would pay for it if it were cheap enough. My venue and my caterer for the party were a 20-minute drive for her, and she expressed zero interest in coming along. My entire wedding, which is a trip that is simultaneously our honeymoon, since we have to go have it out of state as same-sex marriage isn't legal here, cost less than the budget they gave either one of my sisters, but their suggestion to us was, best of us have to scale it back and do whatever you can afford. We are going away for the bare minimum number of days required to file in person, wait for our license, and be married. My mother said she would like to be there for my ceremony, but that is this November, and she's made no travel arrangements to actually come. I don't want my parents' money, but the way that they are using it shows how different this is for them than my sister's weddings. So after staying up all night the other night, agonizing over how to tell her... I took my fiancé and sister's and friend's advice and calmly honestly told my mother how her lack of interest and involvement in my wedding was making me feel. I told her we were canceling our shower, which was more a gathering here for friends before we went away, and we would like our ceremony out of state to be a private one. We're just going to a town hall in front of a justice of the peace, simple and intimate, and there is a part of me that wants that just for us. And another part of me that feels, if people don't really support us, it's not fair of them to show up and demand our attention for one of the days of our brief honeymoon. And I know that if they came, it would be all about us entertaining them because they came such a long way, going out to dinner with them, etc. If they had showed more excitement and interest, I might feel differently. Why well, I was very careful to let mom know how much I wanted her love and her support more than her money. Her reaction to my honesty was sarcasm, cruel, and childish. She ignored everything I had said about how I felt and made it all about herself and how she'd been uninvited to my wedding and put in her place. Now she isn't speaking to me. I'm so sad and I'm hurt, and I guess I want to hear from you, my longtime advice guru, that I did the right thing. I'm her firstborn, and my mom and I have always been close. I didn't think it was fair of me to harbor resentment toward her without telling her how she was making me feel. I'm devastated that I hurt
0: her, but she has also really been hurting me. You should call your mother. You should call your mother and you should invite her to your fucking wedding so that you're not responsible for the estrangement, so that she is the bad actor here, so that you were the adult, so that you were the bigger person. And then you should call your fucking sisters. You don't mention their role in this except cashing those checks that your parents wrote for them to put on their big swanky weddings, but... It was really your sister's job, the both of them together, to go to your mother and run interference for you and to say to your mother on your behalf, on their own behalf, what are you doing? Why are you treating our older sister, your firstborn, in this way that just communicates that you disapprove or you regard her relationship or her marriage as something less than ours? And then your sister should have said to your mother – we don't care if you you want to fuck up your relationship with your oldest child with our sister, with your first daughter, but we don't want you to fuck up our relationship with her because ultimately that's kind of what your mom is doing that that this poison that she's pouring in, in, into the family like this, by playing favorites by allowing her homophobia and her disgust and judgment to lead her to treat you all so differently, that could really fuck up your relationship. With your sisters and your sister's relationship with you for the long term. They should have looked at your mom and said, bitch, you're going to be dead someday and someday soon and it's going to be the three of us left here together. And you doing this sort of thing can lead to estrangements between siblings that are lifelong and really damaging, knock it the fuck off, cough up the fucking money and treat us all equally. It was your sister's job to jump in then and run interference. That said – What your parents are doing is shitty and painful. Obviously, you can hear it in your voice. It's been very painful to be on the receiving end of this kind of discriminatory treatment from someone who claims to love you. But I think you will feel better at and after the wedding if your parents were invited, if your mom was invited, even if she decided not to come. So I don't think you should eat crow. I think you should call her and say, you know what? You're right. I shouldn't disinvite you. So you were invited. The wedding is taking place in – The wedding is at this time, in this place. The reception is here. If you would like to come, I would love to see you there. And then drop it. And if she comes, you don't have to fucking entertain her. You don't have to take her around. It's your wedding and you can spend time and spend the day seeing the people that you want to see. And it won't revolve around your mother. And your mother can't demand that it revolve around her. Parents who write big fat checks get to make weddings for their children revolve around themselves and they get to dictate terms about flowers and catering and all that bullshit. Your mom can't dictate anything to you, where you go afterwards, where you go on your honeymoon, uh, how soon (laughs) you leave the reception. It's your day and you don't have to negotiate its shape or duration or the details with your mom since she's not writing you a check. But I think you'll feel better in the long run. If you invited her, even if she didn't come, because then you, it's not you disinviting your mother and barring your mother from your wedding. Then if your mother doesn't come, it's her own shit and everyone can see who and what at that moment stinks and it wasn't you and it isn't you. And I would give your sisters a call. I really would and say, you know, this is a moment I really needed your support. This is a moment, an ongoing moment when I need your support. I need you to run interference with mom. I need you to talk to mom. About what she's doing to me and what she's doing to us and why she's doing it. Because maybe you two speaking to her and speaking up for me will help open her eyes. Come on, sisters. Mom's going to be dead soon. And it's just going to be the three of us. Let's be the three fucking musketeers about this. uh, And hopefully they will jump in and help you out here as they should.
1: Hi, Deanne. I kind of have a question of confirmation, I guess. When I was a kid, before I'd ever had any sort of sexual experience, I would let my family's dog lick my pitfalls and uh, not naked. I guess I had underwear on, which I think makes it better, I don't know, but um, I'm just trying to find out if that's, uh, if I'm a for having done that a few times or uh, if you know that anybody else has ever done that before um, I've, it's my kind of dark secret I've only ever told my husband and I didn't tell him until we had been together for probably 8 years so I'm just wondering if you think that that is something that other people did, have done <laughs> or if uh, um, I am going to hell for this
0: The Kinsey reports, the very famous Kinsey reports, found that the percentage of people who said that they've had sex with animals at some point in their lives was 8 percent for men and 3.6 percent for women and that the closer you got to farms, the higher those numbers went. Now, there were prison populations included in Kinsey's figures and people thought that might be skewed and artificially raised because of those prison populations. But when they did studies later, uh, the Kinsey Institute um, and took the prison population figures out, they found the numbers were – pretty similar, 8-ish percent of men, 3.6-ish percent of women had sex with animals. But it doesn't sound like you had sex with animals. You said you were a kid uh, and you allowed the family pet to lick your genitals through your underwear. That sounds like the equivalent of the sort of prepubescent, pre-sexual child humping the pillow or humping the banister or enjoying riding that horse for reasons that maybe the boy kids didn't enjoy riding the horse so much for. And that's – quasi-creepy, squeaky, innocent sexual experimentation. It's just that instead of your mom coming around the corner and finding you humping away at the banister because you realize as you slid down the banister that that felt pretty good and so you stayed at the bottom of the banister and started to grind, um, you found that the dog who liked to lick things liked to lick you and when he licked you in a particular place, you liked it particularly. It doesn't make you a freak. That's pretty common. Uh, it's also pretty common to realize that it's pretty squicky and people just generally don't talk about it, which then can make people who've done it feel like they must be the only ones on Earth. And it's not that you are the only one on Earth uh, who allowed the family pet to lick them in a place that they wouldn't allow the family pet to lick them in now and wouldn't want the family pet licking their own kids in. It just means that uh, you haven't Googled it because <laughs> if you Google it, you'll find a lot of stories like yours. If you Google it. Uh, You'll find animation of stories like yours. I don't recommend you click those links but those are out there. Your experience is indeed common and normal-ish and kind of natural as is your um, shyness, uh, embarrassment uh, about it. Also normal, also natural. So nothing wrong with you as long as it's not going on today as long as you are not smearing – peanut butter all over yourself and uh waiting for the neighborhood dogs to come by the house you're fine just fine hi
3: dan i'm a straight male from arizona and i want to say i love your podcast you're doing a great job for everyone um i have a two part question so i met a, a woman at a bar the, about two weeks ago we hit it off immediately i thought she was interesting And then we immediately, on her cue, fucked. And we did it, I'll own this, and it sucks because I'm freaked out now. Without any birth control, I did, I did, (laughs) you know that she asked me if I knew what the pull out method was and I was like are you serious i'm almost i'm almost 30 anyway so um yeah that's what happened and it's been happening since pretty much on a regular basis but here's where the real shit comes into uh, view i went over to her house shortly thereafter it was wretched it was like just filthy um shit i i even saw a couple of baby cockroaches and um, just disgusting. Now, upon my telling her that, she did clean up the place. next time I was over there, it was pretty clean, and she actually (laughs) took the cleaning services for a living. So anyway, and I pretty much let her know, well, I should say this. She told me she loved me after the first night and that she wanted to be with me. My first question is why why would somebody do that? What's, what's going on in their head that they, I mean, it, and she sounds like she's got that high pitch, like, ah, oh, yeah, I love you, blah, 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 kind of voice. And I don't really know. And I was, I, did, I was just like, okay, I, I didn't know how to respond. Second thing, she has a like, three year old, four year old, actually son. And, she, and that's what freaked me out the most. And, um, I tried to get her over to my house and blah, blah, blah. And I did. And, um, anyway, I'm about to call uh, Child Protective Services, and I'd like you to maybe respond if you can about what they do, and if it's smart to even do that because she literally the kid doesn't even have a bed; he sleeps with her, and she's naked, and and he's he's four years old. I mean. It, I, I don't know. I just I have all kinds of issues with that. It doesn't sound right. doesn't look right. doesn't seem right. I, I sleep on the couch when I've slept there, and it's like, dude, I just don't. It, I'm not feeling it, and I already told her it's over, blah, blah, blah. Any help you can give, and, and honestly, I have no idea, and I'm online right now looking up CPS, Child Protective Services, right now and what they do. And, and if you can just elaborate and tell me if I'm doing the right thing by reporting that this is just kind of funky. And I know the kid has actually been taken by them in the past. So holy crap.
0: Joining us by phone, Beverly Payne. She works at the Division of Children and Family Services in Washington State as the area administrator for the Office of Central Intake. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Beverly. Thank you. Uh, so, just generally, before we get into the specifics of this call, uh, what happens when someone calls Child Protective Services?
8: Well, uh, an intake social worker will ask a lot of questions and uh, provide some consultation, uh, depending on you know on what you know what the issues are. Um, I think that a lot of people are. Um, maybe embarrassed or unsure about whether to call us with concerns and we just really want to reassure people that we're here to think things out together um, and provide as much consultation as we can so we don't expect anybody to be an expert on knowing when to call or whether they should call. We, we want to actually um, you know, help you um, provide that information to us and, and we can make that determination about what to do from there.
0: So when should people call?
8: I think any time they have concerns about the welfare or safety of a child, I, I think that they need to trust the concern and trust their own instincts about that. And, um, and like I said, it doesn't mean that something is necessarily going to happen. We have laws uh, that guide what we can and can't do. And
0: could, could you give an example or two of, of what you can respond to and what you can't respond to?
8: Certainly physical injuries to a child uh, that are non-accidental in nature, Broken bones or uh, you know bruising that lasts more than um, or you know marks that last more than 24 hours, um, a child that is unattended, unsupervised, a young child um, that is uh, in danger because they don't have any kind of supervision. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things that we can respond to.
0: But it's not, you know, some people seem to think, uh, vindictive people seem to think that it's as simple as. You know, you can press a button. You can call CPS, and they're just going to jump down the throat of a neighbor or someone you don't like or someone you disapprove of. And that's not the case. There has to be objective. Uh, the, the the case has to meet with some objective criteria and standards about when and you, you will or will not intervene. Correct.
8: That's true. The the law is very specific um, in the definition of when we can intervene. So. There are people on both sides of that issue. Some people think that, you know, they wish we would intervene more often, and and then there are people that think we intervene too often. Um, But we really have to make our best determination in our interpretation of the laws.
0: Well, one issue that comes up a lot is that the people who are most likely to know when a child is in danger or a child isn't being taken care of, isn't being looked after, is being harmed, are people who are close to that family, friends, relatives, neighbors and who may hesitate to call because they, they don't want uh, the person that they're reporting to know that they were reported by that friend, that neighbor, that coworker, uh, that relative. Can people make anonymous calls and will people's anonymity be protected if they report somebody who's failing their child or abusing their child?
8: Yes. So uh, somebody can ask for anonymity. Um, we do encourage people to provide us with contact information because we may need to get a hold of them later to to help, you know, to help assist in gathering additional information if it goes to a CPS investigation. Um, But they can certainly request confidentiality and our agency would do everything we can to protect that. We can't guarantee it always in certain uh, legal proceedings, but we would do everything we could to protect that and certainly during the investigation. Um, And sometimes, uh, depending on the context of the information, the the, uh, person who's being investigated may make a guess uh, and say, you know, accuse somebody, and so they think our agency has told them. And, in fact, we we, we are very careful about safeguarding that information.
0: Okay, let's talk about this case uh, just quickly. All we've got from this caller is the house is filthy and the kid sleeps in the same bed with his mother and the mother's naked. Does that rise to the level of a CPS intervention?
8: I would say uh, that first of all, I I wanted to recognize your caller for caring enough about this child to ask some tough questions and to bring this to light. Um, and I would encourage him if he hasn't already to contact CPS. Um, I, I can't speak to the specifics of this, you know, this particular scenario and whether or not it would screen in for an investigation. For one thing, there is a history here that, uh, I would want to know more about what happened in the past and Mm -hmm. why this child was removed before, and maybe things are getting worse again, but that would certainly raise the level of risk. Just, you know, having a couple of cockroaches and, you know, a filthy house, I would have to ask a lot more questions. You know, what does filthy mean? What, What dirt means to me and what it means to somebody else might be very different. So I would want a lot more specific information, and that's the kind of thing that the intake worker would be asking about. The being mm-hmm. um, naked, the child sleeping naked with his mom, well, you know, he's five. Um, it's, you know, it raises some red flags. It's, 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 some people might be concerned about that. Maybe it's a matter of educating the mom about boundaries. Uh, maybe it's about helping her with some resources to get a bed for him. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that need to be looked at. But I do think that, um, especially given that he'd been removed in the past, that the welfare agency would want to know about the current situation.
0: And it never hurts to perhaps call CPS. And if you're really seriously concerned, if you're thinking about calling CPS, would you urge people then to call CPS? Because that doesn't mean CPS will necessarily intervene. But if you have worries, if you have concerns, you can suss it out, talk it out with somebody at CPS. And then if an intervention is necessary, if that professional thinks it's necessary, it'll happen.
8: Absolutely. Yes, please call us. We're um, we very much want to, uh, you know, as I said, be consultants and, and help you through the process.
0: Beverly Payne works at the Division of Children and Family Services in Washington State as the Area Administrator for the Office of Central Intake. Thank you very much for helping me field this question, Beverly. I wouldn't Thank be able you. to do it on my own.
8: Thank you, Dan.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm the tech I at Risk Youth. My partner and I just got back from a trip and we decided we'd kind of be, be interested in playing around with our house sitter and her boyfriend of a few months. She's due to sit for us again in a few weeks, and we're curious about what your thoughts are about how to approach them. Should we leave them leave something for them to find? My partner suggested leaving a note in our toy drawer for her to discover if she snoops, or should we wait for the business side of things to be done before approaching them? Your thoughts are appreciated.
9: Thanks.
0: If you have a quasi-business relationship with your house sitter, if this is a service that she's providing – Uh, You should wait till after the services have been provided before you make any sort of pass at her and her boyfriend. You don't even know – and I assume you don't know. I assume that you would mention if you knew if they're in any sort of an open relationship. Uh, If they're not, you don't want to give swingers and people in open relationships a worse rap uh, than (laughs) than swingers and people in open relationships already have by just leaping on couples indiscriminately who may or may not be interested – in outside sexual contact as the phrase goes. So here's what you do. You get the house sitting done. Let her come and house sit. If you want to leave the toys out or you know, if you assume that she's snooping as I assume all house suitors do, she'll know that you guys are kind of sexually adventurous. That will be in her head and then establish a social relationship with them. Tell them you'd love to have them over for dinner sometime. Tell them you'd like to hang out sometime. Maybe go grab drinks sometime. Uh, And then see how that goes. And if they are sort of flirty, receptive into it, hanging out with you guys at that point, you make the pass. Uh, But just the second round of house-sitting duties and leaving very special notes for them, that's just fucking creepy. Sorry, that's creepy. See them socially. Hang out. See what kind of vibe you get and then make the decision about whether a pass would be welcomed.
3: Hi, Dan. I'm calling on behalf of all hairy boys and I suppose hairy girls too. I was wondering about Brazilians and men getting them and the horrified look on the poor Polish woman's face when I stick my hairy butt crack and that back in hers. And um, maybe if you have any experience with this or if you have any hairy friends or hairy friends with any experience with this, um, what is the etiquette for? Getting a Brazilian. I've never had one and I really want one. Um, but I'm just shy and I, I don't know how to go about it.
0: So Carly Keaton, you're a professional waxer at the wax on spa here in Seattle, yes. Washington. Um hairy boys. What do they need to know? What's the etiquette? You're a really hairy dude, you're gonna stick your ass in the air, you're gonna get a wax. What's the etiquette?
10: So if we're talking male Brazilian, the etiquette is when you call, you need to find a place that is going to say this is what we do. Mm-hmm. meaning wax on, <laughs> you don't want to go to a place where, you need to go to a place where it's already uncomfortable to get the service done in general, I think, for a lot of men. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure you go to a place where they know exactly what they're doing and you don't have to feel like you're violating some woman that's waxing you while you're being waxed. Uh huh. That's what I think. So.
0: So, so you should call and make sure that waxing is what they do or primarily what they do and that they do men because not all spas, not all waxing salons do men.
10: Absolutely. I mean, I think when you go to a regular spot, sometimes you get an esthetician that maybe does a couple Brazilians a week, if even. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important, you know, to go to a place where they know exactly what they're doing. And you can tell on the phone, you know, you want to call and you can tell right away if they're like, this is what we do. You don't want someone that's like, yeah, we can do that, Mm
0: -hmm. you know. But the, the guy shouldn't yeah. be shy about, you know, spreading his legs and making whatever area, every area of his body he wishes to have waxed available to the waxer. He says, I don't have any experience with this, but the Polish woman doing the waxing, she does. Or the woman doing the waxing uh, at a waxing salon, she has experience with it. You don't have to be shy about being naked in front of that person, right?
10: Absolutely not. You should, No, you do not need to be shy at all. To us, it's skin and hair. It's, very, it's still very, very, like a medical setting. I mean, we we do it all day, every day. I mean, I've been doing it for five years. The spa's been around for 15 years. I mean, you should not be nervous.
0: But do you get it, Do you get the sense, though, when people come in for that first waxing that they are nervous?
10: I, I get the sense a lot on the phone. People will call, and they will definitely beat around the bush, and I'll just have to flat out, you know, they'll say they want to wax, and then we go through the steps of what kind of wax, and mm-hmm. then I realize what they're asking for, and I just say it. And I think that makes them feel comfortable. And I try to use everyday language about it i i'm not you know it's not we're not conservative about anything so
0: and waxing positive expressions like beat around the bush
10: yes exactly
0: uh i keep saying what's the etiquette and i keep hoping you're going to say good personal hygiene comes high on that list at some point i mean that's all you really got to do all you really got to bring besides money to to pay is a clean body right no one wants to wax some dirty guy
10: you no, know, and it's funny because men usually show up the most clean of any. I think because they're just <laughs> really? they're just. I think they're terrified that they're just going to violate some some woman that doesn't want to be doing that, and that's not the case at all. And so, but we do provide you know. A, a, I think any spa should have things like baby wipes. I mean, we give you about. 10 opportunities to get yourself as clean as possible. So,
0: yes. <laughs> and finally, tipping is appreciated, correct? There's the fee that Absolutely. goes to the store and then there's your waxer standing there who like your hairdresser or your waiter. That person is a person you tip. Absolutely. People are sometimes anxious about tipping because they don't know in different circumstances, different kinds of service providers, what an appropriate tip is. What is the appropriate tip percentage-wise or or a, or a number for a waxer?
10: Well, having been... A bartender, waitress, everything, every service, you know, aspect of the service industry, I would say that 20% is great. And then if you feel like more, you know, whatever you feel, but 20%, I would say, is the standard. And definitely don't leave it on the bed. I've had that happen. Maybe <laughs> just tip at the counter.
0: Yeah, leaving it on the bed makes it feel a little sex workery, Correct.
10: Uh, yes, it
0: does. And are there waxing pervs out there? There's pervs in every, every you know, there are pervs after every service professional on the world. There are people who have foot fetishes, who go to shoe stores. There are people who have dentistry fetishes. We've heard from them who make appointments at the dentist that they don't need. Are there people who come in for waxings who are a little too excited about it?
10: You know, normally that's just a phone call that I get. And because I have to be professional, I'll, I'll go through the motions and then you'll realize... What you know that maybe you might try to get them to not make an appointment, but usually the people that get in here on the bed. I, I've never honestly, I've never had somebody, somebody gross me out, do anything, say anything weird. If somebody is offensive, it's usually just the gut feeling that you get, like, eh, I might not rebook that person.
0: Okay, well, it's good to know. I'm glad there aren't waxing pervs out there ruining your day.
10: No. Uh, there doesn't, they, they usually don't make it into the spa. They usually make themselves known before they can even get on the bed.
0: Carly Keaton, a professional waxer here in Seattle at the Wax On Spa. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today.
10: Thank you so much. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a long-term listener, and I finally have a question. I'm a 20-year-old
7: bisexual college girl, and last month I was taking to the bike ward for suicidal ideation. Summer, I know. I was admitted to the ER and transferred to a behavioral health unit 40 minutes away via ambulance, and the auntie who sat in the back with me was kind of my dream man. We had tons of things in common, and there may have been some mutual eye-fucking, even though I wasn't wearing makeup and I was in a hospital town. Anyway, he has a really distinctive name, and I found him on Facebook, but I don't know if I should add him. Is this a psycho bitch move? Is it a HIPAA violation? Forget about him or like find other
0: ways to talk him. Men can be divided into two groups. Guys who will fuck girls they met in the back of an ambulance on the way to a psych ward, and guys who won't fuck girls they met in the back of an ambulance on the way to a psych ward. We don't know which group this guy is in, and there's really only one way for you to find out, which is to go ahead, if you found him on Facebook, because he has a distinctive name, and friend him. I wouldn't recommend friending him and saying, wanna fuck. Uh, I wouldn't recommend friending him and saying there are two kinds of guys in this world, guys who will fuck women who they met in the back of an ambulance on the way to a psych ward and guys who won't. I would just friend him and say, hey, you were really nice. I was having you know, a tough time um, but I'm all better now and you know, your kindness to me is one of the reasons I, I'm back on my feet and I appreciate it. And then see what he says. If he is the kind of guy who will fuck a girl that he met in the back of an ambulance as he transported her to a psych ward, he'll probably let you know. Those guys, the guys in that first group, they tend not to be very subtle. Uh, And if he is indeed the kind of guy who'll fuck a girl he met in the back of her head, but the way this. like, word, I bet I'll tell you. I bet I'll tell you pretty quick. But go ahead and friend him on Facebook, if only to say thank you. And you'd like to say thank you because, indeed, he was nice to you. And then see where it goes. Hi, Dan. I am
3: a 27-year-old gay male living in California. I have an interesting situation think it might be something that you haven't heard yet. I was dating a guy and we recently had a conversation about being monogamous and we had plans to spend the weekend together last weekend and he canceled the plans a little bit, decided that he didn't want to hang out all weekend just on Saturday and that he wanted to spend Friday night by himself. And me being the crazy bitch that I am and not trusting him, decided to drive past his house on Friday night. And I did so and found out that he had somebody over. So I saw him on Saturday, casually brought it up, was like, Hey, I'm a little bit crazy. And I drove by your house and saw you had someone over. And he admitted it. And I was like, you know, I don't think I can see you anymore. You know, have a good day. And I left on Sunday morning. I started talking to a guy online. And we met up for coffee and had a great conversation, really nice guy. And then we went to dinner last night, same guy from coffee on Sunday morning. Again, great time. Here's the awkward part. So the guy that I had coffee slash dinner with drives the same make, model, and color car as the car that was in my X's driveway on Friday night. And it's kind of a unique car. So I don't know if I should bring this up to him and be like, hey, do you know a guy named so and so? Because I don't want to come across as like, the crazy stalker that I am when I just beat somebody. I'd like to ease them into that a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm kind of curious as if you think I should say something. Um, a part of me is really curious. If it is, I think it would be kind of a funny story. But, yeah, just wanted to get your opinion. Would love to hear back from you on
0: this. Not now. Don't bring it up now. Don't bring it up yet. If you wind up dating this guy, if it becomes something serious, you've already hung out with him two or three times. Um, If down the road you two are in a more serious relationship, perhaps a romantically if not sexually exclusive relationship, this would be a funny thing to unpack Then Now, if you bring it up, you're going to seem a little bit like a crazy stalker. If after some time has passed and you prove to him that you're a relationship material and you're not crazy, mentioning that, you know, here's something funny. My last boyfriend, the boyfriend before you, the guy I'm glad I'm rid of because otherwise I wouldn't be with you. We wouldn't have this great thing. You know, when things were going south, I did something a little crazy, drove over to his house and saw this car. Was that your car? Because that means you were the guy who tricked with my ex, which is the reason – why I broke up with him and then we met and fell in love. And isn't that kind of a funny, random, crazy, fucking chaotic universe detail about our romance? In a way, it means we were destined to be together. My ex passed you off to me like a baton. Uh, Then, like a year from now, you could bring it up and unpack it and you won't seem crazy because he'll he'll weigh that one crazy moment. We've all had one crazy moment against all the time he spent with you. Where you haven't been crazy and he'll be able to forgive you that one crazy moment. If you bring it up now, he may rightfully conclude that crazy is what you are and you're constantly crazy and your crazy moments all come very close together. Prove to him that they don't by being not crazy for six months or a year and then bringing up that one crazy time when you drove over to your ex's house and you saw his car, your current's car in the driveway. And thank God for that, right? Because if you hadn't seen your current's car in your ex's driveway, then your ex's trick wouldn't be your current. And you can tell that story at your wedding.
10: Hi, Dan. I just wanted to call after hearing the uh, caller called in about his wife having rheumatoid arthritis and him sort of seeking permission to, to cheat without talking to her first and Uh, I just wanted to present sort of a counter viewpoint. Um, I have the actual same condition and some of the same issues in my marriage, although it's not, it sounds like it's severe as what that caller is going through. But regarding the guilt that she feels, she feels a lot of guilt about not being able to satisfy him sexually. And it's possible. And this would be, I think up to a caller to figure out, but it's possible that she could feel some relief from knowing that he's getting his needs met and it might alleviate some of that guilt. And so it's it's possible that it could be good for him to discuss it with
9: her. Hey, Dan. This is a response to episode 354 about the abuser, the dickbag guy, the 40-year-old guy that's dating the 19-year-old girl. So he's super-duper irrational jealous, and I agree with you on that part. The reason he's super-duper irrational jealous about the gay friends is because his attachment style is what's called anxious. And what happens with someone who is more anxious on the attachment spectrum is they become jealous a lot quicker because when their primary partner is not away or not accessible or not engaged, they tend to get triggered and they freak out. And the way that they start behaving is often, uh, like you identified, irrational, crazy jealousy, uh, dickbag, etc., but what they need is not to get dumped. Uh, what they need is for somebody who's going to work with them to calm their irrational fears. So, what the person who is willing to to use your term pay the price of admission to be with an anxious, what they need to do is be available, be accessible to the other person, work towards listening when a concern or a fear or some irrational jealousy pops up, and then continue to share with them the fact that they're present, the fact that they're not going anywhere, the fact that they have nothing to worry about. And over time, and this can happen even over just a short few month period, that person is less likely to get triggered.
3: Hi Dan, I'm calling in response to the college student uh, dating a 40-something-year-old guy who is jealous of her uh, gay friends. I'm calling to tell uh, her that you are absolutely right. She should dump this controlling jerk. I was in a similar situation. I was with a guy for uh, nearly seven years, and uh, my ex was 11 years older than me, and he had issues with me having friends. He had issues with me spending too much time with my friends. and He had issues with me having any gay friends. My ex at the time had serious control issues, and I think your boyfriend does too. However, I wasn't able to realize it at the time because I was too young, and you are too. So dump the jerk
6: and enjoy whatever it is that 19-year-olds do.
0: And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future Savage Lovecast, give us a buzz, 206-201-2720. As ever, a big thank you to all the Savage Lovecast Magnum subscribers out there. We would appreciate it. Also, if you took a moment to go to the iTunes store and review the Savage Lovecast magnum thank you all so much 206-201-2720 that's the number follow me on twitter at fake dan savage buy my new book american savage in bookstores now the savage love cast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the savage love cast thanks for having me